mark for the last uh, 12 weeks. Today's number 13. And if you have enjoyed the studies in the Gospel of Mark, let me just challenge you to think about who needs to be here with you. Who are you inviting to come with you to church? Who is it that needs to know about the compassion and the power of Christ? Because when we look at Mark's Gospel, Mark really is trying to communicate two very important things to you. One, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You cannot read Mark without looking at the accounts of what happens through his ministry, through his miracles, through his power, and see that he, can, that he is not the Son of God. That is the point he is trying to make. The second point he's trying to make is that he, in that power, is also a compassionate Lord who loves you, and he's here for you. In fact, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, we see two things emerge throughout his ministry. We see what we'll call kind of the, the courage equation. It goes like this, that divine power, which we've seen Jesus exercise in the miracles and ministry, plus his divine compassion. Why did he do these things? Because he looked upon people and he had compassion. So divine power plus divine compassion equals daily courage, daily courage. That's what we're going to look at today, specifically in this account in, in Mark 6. But friends, how many of us need to hear this today? Because in the, in, in the audience to which Mark was writing this gospel, remember Mark was writing primarily to a Roman audience who lived around Rome. I mean, these were people who were, who were seeing their Christian friends die because Nero was on the hunt for Christians. They were being persecuted. They were being cast into uh, the auditoriums where they would be ripped apart by lions, or they'd be crucified. And this was what was happening at the time in which Mark was trying to encourage these Christians. And the great encouragement was, Jesus has divine power and divine compassion. And because of that, we can live with daily courage. You see, for the most Romans, before they came to know Jesus, they served these pagan gods of Rome who were all about divine power. They were never about compassion. That would be weak of the gods if they were compassionate for you. But here is Jesus, undeniably divine in power, yet divine in compassion. And because of that, those two, power, compassion, we can recognize that whatever life brings our way, we can face it with daily courage because of those things. So today as we look at Mark 6 and kind of bring this chapter to a close, we're going to discover that we can take courage. We can take courage amidst the struggles of life because Jesus, he's not only with us, he is for us. So let's go to Mark chapter 6 in your Bible, verse 45. If you don't have a Bible, we always make Bibles available by the main doors as you come in. You can take those Bibles as a gift from Neighborhood Church to you. We value God's Word, so we want you to have it. Also, if you have a smart device, a tablet, you can uh, use the Bible app. YouVersion Bible app is one of the most downloaded apps in most app stores. And we uh, push our notes directly through that Bible app. And you can uh, go on to there, go to menu, find events, and we're right there as well. Mark 6, 45. I know we saw it dramatized for us, but listen to the words again. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. So what's happening here? As we remember the, the account last week, we looked at uh, that moment as Mark 6 was opening. Jesus had just recently commissioned his disciples 
to go and preach in surrounding cities and villages. And the disciples went out in pairs of two, and they preached. And they came back to Jesus with this glowing report of their ministry, yet they were also tired. In fact, there were so many people pressing in around Jesus and his disciples that Jesus decides it's time to go away to a remote place and get some rest. You might recall, right? So they get in the boat, they begin to journey on the sea, and when they get to this remote place... (laughs) They discover thousands of people waiting for them there. In fact, we know that looking at the account of the feeding of the multitudes, there was probably 10 to 15,000 people waiting Jesus and disciples on the shore. So no rest, but Jesus, being the compassionate Lord that he is, begins to teach them and teach them. And on the day goes through his teaching where pretty soon they're in a remote place, people are getting hungry, and Jesus tells the disciples to give them something to, to eat. And they're like, what are we, how are we going to have enough stuff to feed this many people? And Jesus goes, well, what do you got? Well, we got a kid's meal. That's what we've got. A kid's meal with some fish and some bread. And so Jesus takes that fish and the bread and multiplies it and feeds the multitude. Now, imagine being there that day. You've already heard about Jesus, this miracle-working prophet of God, and now he's feeding you. So he's powerful and he's compassionate. And they look at Jesus and they begin to realize this is not any ordinary guy. And so they determine to make him king. In fact, we don't see this in Mark's account of the gospel, but you go to John's account of this feeding of the multitudes. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 14, we see it. It says that after the people saw the sign, which was Jesus feeding the multitudes, the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself to pray. So interesting. From John's account, the crowd sees Jesus. They know who he, he is, is this great prophet, they, they see what he does, great things, great teaching, great power, great provision, and they're like, he needs to be king. Now, remember in this time, Rome has control of most of the known world at the time. In fact, what used to be Israel as a nation is now subject to Rome. And so there is really only one emperor, one king, his name was Caesar. And then Israel was allowed to have kind of a puppet king, His name was Herod, and we've already heard about Herod. We'll hear more about Herod later. So there's kind of kings, and there's the great emperor, and now they're trying to make Jesus king because who else is the one, the promised one, the prophet who would come, the Messiah, and who would restore his his kingdom now? And there'd be people who were willing to make him king now to restore Israel's pride. So when they looked at Jesus, they saw him as as a deliverer, as a provider, as a rescuer, as a king. And so they were willing at that point to force their agenda on Jesus. Now, is that why Jesus came? To be an earthly king now? No, he had a mission. Is he king? Absolutely. Is he rescuer? Absolutely. Provider? Totally. But not in their time, in the time determined by God. See, think about it. If Jesus had actually submitted to their desire to make him king now, what would have happened? I mean, certainly Jesus could have led Israel into great victory. They could have been, they could have become a nation once again. There could have been peace for a generation or two. But that would be about it. 
Because Israel, even with great kings, had a way to continue to undermine their future. We saw it in the Old Testament, right? David, a great king, and yet still out of that came dysfunction and Israel turning away. So yeah, Jesus could have come. He could have been that king. He could have led them to a couple generations of peace. But he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He wouldn't have become the savior they needed. And there wouldn't have been peace for generations for all people. And this is what happens, friends, when we're tempted to pursue the temporal solution in exchange for the eternal solution. And Jesus wasn't willing to do that. He said, no, we got to get out of here quick. In fact, he sends his disciples quickly. Why? Because the disciples might like the idea of Jesus being a king right now. It's like, hey, we get to be like princes and we get to help rule. That'd be a great idea. Because even they at times were not clearly seeing why Jesus came. So he gets them out of the area, out of the influence of the crowd, and then he withdraws from the crowd and goes to a mountainside to pray. Why pray? See, in Mark's account, there are pivotal times that we see Jesus pray. Three specifically. The first one was in the opening of this gospel. Shortly after his ministry began and he gained popularity, especially in Capernaum, we see him pull away at dark and he goes away to pray, to stay on mission. We see him in this account in Mark 6. We see him pull away from the crowd that wants to make him king and he prays. We see another account specifically of his prayer, and guess where it takes place? Mark 14, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying a pivotal prayer. Father, if there's any way this cup could pass, let it happen. But nevertheless, what did he say? Not my will, but yours. There came times in Jesus' ministry where he could have gone a different direction, but he prayed to stay on task. Why? Because, yes, he was God, but he was also fully a man wrestling with what the cross would mean for him. And it takes courage, friends, to stay true to God's plan for your life. Many of you have felt that. God's had a plan for you. He wants you to live a victorious Christian life. And guess what? It takes courage to do that. But here's the thing we can gain from Jesus, that prayer fuels the courage that we need to keep us in line with God's purpose for our lives. And so Jesus pulls away and recenters. He prays. He spends time with his father. Not to be king now, but to, father, to, to follow his father's plan. Well, it goes on in Mark 6, 47. That when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So about evening, which is when he sent them away, it was about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. So it's just beginning to get dark And he sends the disciples into the lake alone to go to the other side. And he goes to a mountain to pray. On a previous occasion, you might recall that Jesus was with the disciples in the boat when they were crossing the lake, and all of a sudden a storm comes upon them. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat. They have to wake him up. And when he gets up, what does Jesus do? He kind of chastises them, but he calms the storm. He speaks to the storm, and it's done. And now, here we see, again, on the heels of a great success, a great miracle, Jesus sends the disciples into the boat across the lake. In that first experience, Jesus was with them. This experience, they're in the boat, they're in the storm, and Jesus is on land. He's on a mountain. I think it's interesting 
the way that Jesus oftentimes would do something with his disciples, and then he would send the disciples away. We already saw that happen. Jesus had taught, and now he had actually taught his disciples to go teach, right? So he sent them, and they came back with good news. So now we see another time when Jesus is like, I'm going to let them go into a situation alone and see what they do with this. And so he sends them, he stays on the shore, and they bump into another headwind against them, and a storm begins to come that makes it difficult for them to row. In fact, it says that a fierce wind came blowing against them, and they could not even use their sails any longer. They struck their sails, and they began to take the oars and row against the wind. In fact, when we see this word straining, the actual Greek word is the word we, we use for torment. They were tormenting at the oars as they were trying to work against the wind, and they were going absolutely nowhere, straining at the oars and getting in nowhere. I think some of us can relate to that, right? There have been times in our life when we've been straining at whatever. Maybe it's not oars because maybe that's the last thing on your list, but you're straining at something. In fact, I think all of us have a way that we would complete this statement, straining at the blank because blank is against you. Maybe for some, you would fill in the blank straining at my marriage because, and then whatever it is that's against you, maybe it's time is against us, or a sense of communication is against us, or because uh, attitudes are against us, or maybe you would say straining at parenting because my kids are against me. I mean, whatever it might be, for you, we've all have felt those moments when we're straining at life because something is against us, and it's tormenting us. In this case, it's disciples. They're in the boat. They're straining at the oars because the wind is against them. And Jesus sees them straining. And if we could just pause there and take comfort in that right now, friends, listen, Jesus saw them straining. The good news is nothing leaves his watchful eye. He's aware. And what we see happen is that Jesus has taken his disciples into a situation that they have not intended to go. I mean, he sent them there. But they didn't intend for a storm. They didn't intend to be straining at the oars for hours, right? But he did that in order to produce something in them that they could not achieve on their own. In fact, friends, I'll tell it to you this way. There are times that Jesus will take you where you haven't intended to go. And maybe that's into a, a, a bad spot financially or a bad spot relationally or maybe something that came back from the doctor that wasn't a good report. There are times we find ourselves and life puts us into a place where we've not intended to go. In order to produce in us something that you could not achieve on your own. How many would know that there are situations you found yourself in where you discovered things about God you would not have learned had you not been in that situation? You know what that's called? That's called uncomfortable faith. When we get into something that doesn't make sense to us, we didn't intend to be here. This isn't the way I would have planned it, yet here we are. Why? To learn something about the Lord. And that Jesus' concerns reminds us that he sees the disciples. He sees us straining at our responsibility. And he sees it and takes note. Though they had lost sight of Jesus, guess what? He had not lost sight of them. And while they felt like the wind was against them, somebody was coming for them. Let's look at it. Verse 48, the last half of that verse, about the fourth watch of the night. He went out to them. 
walking on the lake. Now, the fourth watch of the night, that would be about 4 o'clock in the morning. So think with me here, mathematicians. We have the disciples being sent out at about 8, 9 o'clock at night. They kind of row into the middle of the lake. Maybe that takes a half hour to an hour. And now, for the last six to seven hours, they've been getting nowhere. Stuck in the middle of the lake, straining at the oars. Why would Jesus wait so long, right? I mean, why didn't... And then we look at this. Well, I guess one of the things we can say is this, that Jesus' observation of our struggles doesn't guarantee the immediate intervention within your struggle. There are times we're going we're gonna to struggle and it's going to be allowed and we don't get it. But that struggle teaches us something about ourselves and something about God. In fact, many of you parents have known this. There have been times in your parenting that you've allowed your child to struggle for a season. Why? Because you want to teach perseverance, but also sometimes I just want my kid to ask for help. You ever felt that as parents? It's like they, especially hover parents, we just kind of, we're there, we take care of it right away. We, we see a need, we step into it, and we don't teach our kids how to press through or ask for help. So here's Jesus allowing struggle for hours, perhaps, before he walks to them. And what it shows us is that they hit another storm. They should have thought, hey, we've been here before. And when Jesus was with us, what was it that he did? He, he calmed the storm. He's like ultimate power over the storm. They didn't think that, though, did they? They, they forgot about that. So Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Now, a lot of us, you know, we look at that phrase, and we haven't even thought second about it. We didn't even think back. I need to say this again. Jesus walked to them on the water. This has not happened before, friends, and we are so invaded now in, a, in, in our American entertainment with special effects and CGI graphics that we would think, oh, that's no big deal. In fact, when we read it, nothing within us even moves. But listen, Jesus walked on the water. Why would Jesus walk on the water? Why would he walk on the water to them? I mean, think about it. He is Jesus, last time there was a storm, what did he do? He just spoke, and it went calm. Why wouldn't he just speak on top of the mountain where he's dry and where he can see them, Why? and he can see the water, and he's the Lord of creation? Why not just speak, you know, help him out, peace be still, and it would have stopped. He could have done that, but why walk on the water? There's a couple of things I think we can learn from him. One, Walking on the water meant he was inserting himself back into their situation. He was coming for them. That's one reason, to be present with them in the storm, hopefully to reassure them, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, I think there was another reason why. Because as you look at the Old Testament, there are scriptures that speak about treading upon the waters, and they all relate to God. This walking on the water was an absolute declaration and sign that Jesus is God, period. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of verses. One of them is in Job chapter 9, verse 8, that says this, that he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. 
We also see in Psalm 77, verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. This is the kind of God who walks on water, the one who was Lord and master over the waters that he created. It's once again, friends, a sign for us of his divine power and, in the case of Jesus, his divine compassion, because now he's coming to them which should have welled up in the hearts of the disciples, divine courage. Is that what happened? Or daily courage? Is that what happened? No, let's look at it. Verse 48. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, what does it mean that it says that he was about to pass by them? I mean, doesn't that just kind of, you read that, it's like, man, that sounds like really insensitive. It's like, Jesus, you saw their need, and you're about to pass by them? I think we have to understand what's going on here. Well, first of all, we have, of course, Peter's account of what's happening. Because remember, he's the one that was talking to Mark about what happened, because Jesus, um, Peter was with Jesus, Mark wasn't. Mark was just a kid about this time, and so he's telling Mark the story. And maybe in Peter's perspective, he was like, we're all struggling, straining at their and then Jesus just comes walking by like he's going to pass us. Maybe that was his view of what was going on. You don't care, you're going to walk right by us. That's like Jesus was going to say, you know, last one of Bethsaida is a rotten egg. I mean, who knows what was going on, but it appeared to them as though he was going to pass by. But that's not the case, friends. Jesus' passing by them was an attempt to reassure them and to show them his authority and divinity. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, there was a time that Moses, the leader of Israel, was facing some very difficult things, and he needed to know God was with him and for him, and so he asked to see God. And the Lord says, I can't show you myself. Man cannot see God and live, but here's what I will do for you, Moses. So God makes a concession that he would put Moses up onto the side of a cliff and God would pass by him. And in that moment, Moses sees and knows that this God is for him and is with him. And so now we take that word picture and we see Jesus, Son of God, revealing himself to them, walking on water, something only God can do. And he walks by them. Why? To reveal his divinity and power to them. And he's treading upon the very thing that they're afraid of. I mean, think about that. Jesus is walking on the water. They're afraid they're going to die. They're being bombarded by the waves that Jesus is walking on. Friends, whatever is against you, here's the good news. Jesus walks upon it, and he has authority over that. That's who he is. So his passing by was an attempt to reassure them that I'm with you and I am for you, and they mistake him for a ghost. Why? Because fear in the midst of our storms distorts our view of reality, doesn't it? I mean, the reality is Jesus was there. He was walking to them. He cares about them. But they were so absorbed in their fear of what was happening and their situation that they did not even think that this is something Jesus would do. I mean, by now, I would hope that if I was a disciple, I'd go, okay, I get this guy. He can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, he's God. 
I would hope I would have responded that way, but they weren't quite that way. In fact, what they saw as Jesus trying to reveal himself, their perspective was it's, it's a ghost coming to torment us and maybe even kill us. And so they were afraid and they cried out. They weren't getting it. But friends, let me just assure you of this. Of all of the miracles that Jesus has done, it's his presence that is first and foremost. It's his presence. The the calming of the storm, that's secondary. The fact that Jesus would walk on water to be with them, that is the greatest miracle. I don't know, if I was Jesus, I might have just kept walking. (laughs) Good luck, guys. And I probably would have just kept walking because they think he's a ghost. They don't even see him for who he is. Well, it goes on in verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So seeing their fear, he speaks to them. And he speaks, take courage. Now, why could they take courage? In other words, it's something they should have been putting on, right? That's the idea here. Take courage. It's something they should have put on, and he assured them with why. It is I. Now, the Greek language misses the true Aramaic behind what he said. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, take courage. I am. And when he spoke those words, I am, he was speaking the covenant name of God given to Moses when Moses was being called by God to go set the Israelites free from Egypt. Moses said, well, who should I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am. This is the most holy name of God among the Hebrew nation. In fact, they won't even speak it. It's that holy. This is the covenant name of God that Jesus used, and he used countless times, actually, and because he used it, the Jewish leaders thought he was a blasphemer. But he was drawing upon his covenant name in that moment. Why? Because wrapped up in that covenant name of I am is the eternal God, and wrapped up in that eternal God is all of his attributes and all of his promises. And so Jesus says, take courage. Why? Because I am is with you now. I am. So don't be afraid. But they still didn't get it. We'll come back to that as the story continues. But here's the thing I want us to see. that You know, for us, fear is a natural reaction to something that's beyond our power and control. If we were in a storm on on a boat on the sea, I'm sure we might also become afraid. And Jesus says to take courage. Why? Because his presence is with them, and that presence is a cause for courage. What is courage? Courage is basically the ability or the strength to act in the face of fear. That's what it is. And the reason we don't feel very courageous is because of the simple fact that courage is never exercised if we avoid our fears. And there are things that you're afraid to trust God with. There are things you're afraid to do for God. And because of that, you will never have the courage to do it because courage is the act in the face of fear. And he says to them, take it up because I am with you. And that would become a phrase, hopefully, that would encourage these disciples later in the book of Acts when they now, Jesus has ascended to heaven Okay, he's not even in the boat, he's not even on the mountain, he's in heaven, and they are now led 
to, to lead the mission of the church, and they were going to face hardship and struggle. There'd be more straining, but not at the oars, right? It'd be straining to advance the mission of Jesus in a culture that wants to kill them, right? And so what better hope to have than, you know what? The I am is with us. In fact, what did Jesus leave them with in Matthew 28? The Great Commission said this, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that would fuel the courage that these disciples would need, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to advance that mission because God, the Holy Spirit, is in them. And friends, here's the good news. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers. God is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. So do you lack courage today? Perhaps it's time to face your fears knowing that Christ is with you to give you courage, the strength to face those fears. Whatever that fear might be, take heart because he's with you. And maybe you just need to hear Jesus speak those words of assurance over you today. A few weeks back, we had a marriage night that some of you came to. It was a simulcast featuring some various teachers. One of those was comedian Michael Jr. And he shared something that really wasn't a comedy piece. It was a very moving piece about a time that he experienced as a father the power of a voice of assurance. Let's roll it. All you got to do is open your eyes. If only the disciples could have done that that day and saw Jesus for who he really was. Now, what's interesting, as we, as we look at that, as we hear the story, this is what their response should have been, and it should be our response, that Christ's presence produces courage in the midst of our struggles and fears. That should be the truth we walk away from, that his presence produces courage. Now, notice He's always there. Remember, he already told his disciples, look, I'm never going to leave you. I'm with you always. So he's already here. But there's a realization we have to have that he is. Because how many times do we strain at the oars and fight and protest and not stop and remember, he's with me. He's watching over my struggle right now. How silly that I have not stopped to invite him in because when I know he's here, that produces courage in the midst of my struggles, in my fears. Now, as a side note, I think it's interesting here that Mark does not share the account of Peter then saying, well, if it is you, call me to come out of the boat and I'll walk to you on the water. See, Matthew's gospel records that. This is the same event. And for some reason, it's not in Mark's account, which would, by the way, would be the only reason he'd have this account is because of Peter. So why, did, why, why is that missing in Mark's gospel? I mean, there's a lot of speculation about why, um, but I think if I was Peter, I'd be like, oh, oh wait, you got to make sure you add this part of the story because, like, I walked on water. Everybody else in the boat was doubting and they were all afraid, but I told Jesus, hey, if it's you, call me out. And guess what? I walked on the water, Mark. I walked on the water. I mean, wouldn't that be something you'd want to have in a gospel about you? But it's not in there. And maybe it's because while Peter did walk on the water, when he was keeping his eyes on Jesus, when his attention shifted to the reality around him, uh, there's 
waves and storms, they began to sink, right? Maybe that's why. Maybe he didn't want to. I don't know. It's a lot of speculation about why, but I think it's just interesting. It's absolutely silent in there. So Mark picks it up at verse 51. Then he, being Jesus, by the way, and Peter, climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, when you look at that last verse, verse 52, this seems so absolutely just kind of random. It's like all of a sudden we got all this, these loose threads somehow trying to be tied together. They were amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Wait a second, there was no loaves even mentioned in this story, and their hearts were hardened? This just seems like some random phrases just tossed out by, by Mark. But let me just tell you, friends, this is not random, and I want to explain why. When it says they were amazed, that was not a compliment about Jesus. Amazement is not faith. I've said it before when we talked about the fact that Jesus calmed the storm, because they were amazed then, too, when he spoke and the storm was calm. Amazement is not faith. Let me explain. You can be amazed by a magic trick or an illusion. You can be amazed by that. But that does not mean you have faith in that magician who just did the magic trick. Right? They are not the same. They are not equal. And so when it says that the disciples were amazed, what amazement really is, is it's a function of the brain. And amazement is basically when uh, you have been taken beyond the categories that you have to explain or define something. So let's say, for example, you think back to the most amazing thing you've ever said or saw. <laughs> okay, Maybe it was a sunset. And all of a sudden, you're confronted with something that you don't have categories to define or explain. For example, try to explain a sunset to somebody who has never seen it. And it sounds like this. Well, it was like, it was like yellow, and it was orange, and it was, I mean, what's going on in a person's mind with those phrases, right? We just don't have an ability to define it. That's amazement. And what was happening here is the disciples' ability to reason that was overwhelmed again, but with a measure of unbelievability. They were amazed, but that wasn't faith. So what is faith? Faith is it actually an act of the heart or the will that involves the mind, but it starts here. And faith is this reality we have in our heart that then changes your life and changes the way you live your life. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 1 talks about faith, and it uses these terms of reality, right? Look at it on your own time. But that's what faith is. It is something, it's a, it is a an absolute reality in your heart that changes the way you live. That's faith. So we believe in Jesus as God's son. That is a reality we embrace with our heart, we confess with our mouth, and we observe with our mind. And because of that, it should change the way we live. Disciples were amazed, which means they still hadn't got it. And that's why Mark goes on to explain for they had not understood about the loaves. So what's the point about the loaves? Jesus took the loaf and fed multitudes. 
that he is God. He is the provider. He's the one who can take that which is nothing and make it into something. He's the one who has authority over material items and all of creation. That was the point. They didn't understand who this really is yet. And it says their hearts were hardened. That sounds harsh because last time I remember hearing this specifically, it was talked about the religious leaders and it was talked about Pharaoh of the Old Testament whose heart was hard against what he was seeing. He was seeing these miraculous interventions of God on behalf of the people of Israel in Egypt and yet his heart was hardened. You know what that means? A hard heart is resistant to change. It is resistant to to making the change needed to believe. Why was their heart so hard? They'd been with Jesus now two years, people. We are at the end of his second year of ministry. They have seen him do some pretty crazy things, yet their heart is still hardened. It's hard for them to see that this is the Son of God. Now, before we give them a hard time, let me remind you, we're not that different. Because we have Scripture We have the stories of Jesus and the Old Testament showing us the nature of God. We have the Holy Spirit within our lives to direct us and guide us. And yet when hardship comes, what do we do? We live as though those things aren't even true. We're not that different, friends, from the disciples. And we have to be careful of the hardness of heart taking place where we're resistant to change and and we're inflexible and we're unmoving. God is looking for people with soft hearts. The disciples will eventually get it, but they're not there yet. The story goes on as we close out that he goes on to the shore and heals. Let's look at it. Verse 53, that when they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout. So we have contrast. We have the disciples, they think he's a ghost. Don't even recognize him. And on the heels of that, we have people with eyes of faith who see who he is. They see Jesus and they recognize him. And they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, reminding us of that great miracle story of the woman with the issue of blood. And all who touched it were healed. I mean, how do you participate with that and still have a hardness of heart? God, help us, right? But unlike the disciples, here's our takeaway today. I can take courage because the great I am is with me at all times. At all times. Whatever you face straining at the oars of your life, physically, financially, emotionally, whatever that is, I can take courage because the great I am is with me at all times. I want to remind you of what the great I am said in Deuteronomy. It's kind of similar to what Jesus said in Matthew. God said this, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. The them were the enemies, the opponents that went against Israel. Don't be terrified of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what Jesus was saying. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go about the mission God has for you. And here's the good news. I am with you always to the end of the age. 
difference is the disciples did not have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit within them. Their salvation has not yet taken place. They're with Jesus, they're seeing his ministry, but they have not had that born-again spirit experience yet in them. And we'll see that take place as Mark continues way down a few more chapters. So let's not give them a hard time, but let's look at our own hearts right now and recognize where have I lacked courage in areas of my life when I know the great I am is with me? I can trust him. Because why? Divine power plus divine compassion. And God is both equals daily courage. That's why we can take courage. Let me pray with you. Lord, as we look at this story, as you looked up from that mountain peak and you saw your disciples struggling, it's so It is so remarkable, Jesus, that you walked on the water to them to show them that you are God, undeniably the great I am, and you're with them in their struggles. And even with all of that, they didn't get it, Jesus. And while it might be easy for us to shake our heads at them, we've all been there. When you're showing up in our circumstances and we don't see it. And because of that, we live in fear. So Lord, remind us today that whatever comes our way, we can be people of courage. That we can take courage because of your divine power and your divine compassion that is still at work in our lives today. So I pray for those specifically right now that are going through stuff that is hard I pray you'd bring this to their remembrance tomorrow and the next day and the next day, that you are with them right now in their struggles. And because of that, you can give them courage. So thank you for that assurance today that each of us needs. Thank you for your compassion. But you're not just all compassion. Thank you for your power that can help us to live a courageous life victorious life. Pray that for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.